Towards the end of April each year, people throughout New Zealand, Australia and many parts of the world gather to commemorate the loss of thousands upon thousands of lives at Gallipoli during the 1915-1916 conflict. A geographical stone's throw away, a lesser-known tragic genocide and ethnic cleansing of Armenians was taking place resulting in the loss of over a million Armenian lives and the displacement of countless others. With the recent Anzac commemorations in New Zealand and the historic recognition of the Armenian genocide by US President Biden in mind, I had the privilege to talk with Maria Armudian about the genocide, the history of the Armenian people and the recent conflicts in the area known to Armenians as Artsakh. Maria is of Armenian-American descent and is a politics lecturer at the University of Auckland. She is also a published author, broadcaster, musician and journalist. Maria, thank you for joining me and taking the time. Um, So look, this is going to be an interesting podcast, especially with recent events around the Armenian genocide and recognition around the world. But before we get into it, just tell me a little bit about your background. You know, how did how did you end up in this little corner of New Zealand, and 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 what's your connection to Armenia? Okay, so both sides of my both my parents have fathers who were genocide survivors. My dad's father was the one who had the most um, difficult experience where they, um, he, he watched eight of his younger brothers and sisters die. His mother's side of the family all died. Um, and he had some pretty horrific stories from what he had seen. I say that as if he told stories. We had to drag it out of him. Um, my mother's side didn't see as much of the actual genocide as on my dad's side. Her father was a really young, maybe five, and they luckily were on the coast of the Mediterranean. So when um, they had to flee, they managed to get on a boat and go to Cyprus. But there were two girls that died somehow, and nobody will say how. Right. Um, there, I have some suspicions, but you know, can't really confirm them in any way. So that, I mean, that's my direct familial connection to Armenia and the Armenian genocide. I did not intend to be a scholar of this material. But when I moved to New Zealand and noticed that nobody really knew about this, and it surprised me because I was... I came from Los Angeles, where there's really large Armenian population. And, you know, every April 24th, the streets are filled with Armenians marching and asking for recognition. And there's, there's quite a movement. I mean, the genocide is in the curriculum of the mm-hmm. schools. So it, it was just, it was a culture shock. Mm. And so I thought, well, let me just, do a few things. Um, I put on an event where we had a conversation about, you know, causes and consequences of genocide, and we included the Armenian one into that, showed a film about the Armenian genocide, and it was 
it was like standing room only. People were interested. Mm. So, I, you know, I kept going down this path slowly because I was really uncomfortable. I had to really face a lot of my own personal um, demons I didn't want to really look at. But I looked a little bit here and a little bit there and tried to analyze, in particular, New Zealand's connection to the Armenian genocide because I knew that there was um, a connection with Anzac and Gallipoli. So that's where I started to study the material. Um, the other piece that I became really interested in was intergenerational trauma, which is, I would say that almost all communities who have either a genocide or something nearly that bad have a version of this where the trauma and the grief gets passed down generation after generation, especially if it is unresolved, unrecognized, and unspeakable. So the thing about the Armenian genocide is so many people could not speak about it. My grandfathers could, could didn't speak about it. They were very quiet. There, we don't know why exactly. Maybe there was just a lot of terror still there, a lot of shame still there. We don't really know why. But when it's unspoken and when it's unresolved, sometimes the child and then the grandchild, I being the grandchild, have these inexplicable emotions and, and that led me to start digging into intergenerational trauma and grief. So those two things sort of connected up while I was here mm -hmm. to start to try to understand both, you know, New Zealand's relationship with the Armenian Genocide, which, believe it or not, there is one, and my own and my friends and family and others who have been through either this particular genocide or others, the kind of intergenerational effects of that. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about intergenerational trauma is that it's epigenetic. Um, there's a talk I gave back in LA about how epigenetic scholars would study mice where they uh, traumatized a mouse just for five minutes a day, exposed him to a bully mouse. And he had the, the that particular mouse had the symptoms of uh, depression and PTSD. But it wasn't just that mouse, but his offspring, even though the offspring was never bullied. And not only that, but the offspring of the offspring. And so... This was what started to put the pieces together was reading about epigenetics. And I was like, oh, okay, now it's starting to make sense. Do I really want to read about this stuff? Do I really want to understand this? It's been hard, but yeah. So what, it might be helpful because a lot of people will be listening to this without Armenian heritage, yeah. without really knowing anything about the Armenian genocide other than hearing about it in passing. So... I think it might be useful just to explain how, how I, I became interested in this. So many years ago, I was researching or interested in you know, ancient civilizations and megalithic architecture, et cetera, et cetera, and was studying uh, Baalbek in Lebanon and uh, Gobethli Tethli in what is now Turkey. Um, and while looking at that, I, Which I, I believe was, was Portazar. 
in Armenia. Yeah, and I believe that's where the Armenian alphabet was eventually founded. Yeah. Yeah. And so I thought, well, hold on a minute. This is quite, this is, and then the the more I looked into it and, you know, learnt about Mount Ararat and the, the foundations of the Christian, one of the First Nations of Christianity and the resting place of Noah's Ark and all of that, if, you, if you're into that type of thing. Garden of Eden, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, Oldest oh, true, oldest I, wine, oldest, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bread, wine, yeah. The, 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 the seat of civilization in, in many respects. And I was never taught this. It never came up on, my, on our history radar. Um, and then when we moved to New Zealand and I became aware of the timing of, you know, Gallipoli and Anzac and mm. it, not many people realise why, while Australia and New, New Zealand lost their 100 and, or 150 or so thousand brothers and sisters there, the other side, literally just over the mountain, the, there was the start of Armenians' loss of 1.5 million people. So for me, it was a big shock mm. coming to that. Uh, just a couple of things. First of all, scholars are now in a debate about if the Armenian genocide actually started on April 24th when those orders, the killing orders, were made um, by the Young Turks. Because there was a previous period of time under Sultan Hamid in the 1890s where there were masses of atrocities and massacres of Armenians. And then the ongoing in the 1920s, uh, including under Mustafa Kemal, who we know as Ataturk now. So some scholars are now arguing that it was actually a 30-year genocide, that this was not just 1915 to 1922 or whatever. Um, so I don't have a position on that because I don't, I haven't looked closely enough at whether you can call that whole thing a 30-year genocide. But I do tend to lean in that direction. Yeah. That said, the Anzac soldiers witnessed the Armenian genocide and wrote about it in their diaries. Uh, there's a book out now by James Robbins, you may have heard of him, um, about the New Zealand side of that, uh, where he quotes from some of those diaries. It's called, When We Dead Awaken. Um, I'm proud to say James learned of the Armenian genocide from the event that I put on when I first got here. So that connection, of course, history never tells you the whole thing. It gives you a small frame, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the Anzac history has become just between the Anzac soldiers and Turkey and has been completely skewed, by the way, that what they said then is so different from what they say now. But in, in that mix was that the, of course, the genocide was occurring partly connected to Gallipoli because the Anzac soldiers came over. That was particularly scary for um, the Young Turks. The killing orders were made. They started to arrest the heads of the community, the spiritual leaders, the intellectuals, conscript the males, and then kill them all. And then marching the women and children and elderly and infirm into the desert to die. Getting slaughtered along the way, burned alive, you know, cut to bits, killed with hammers, saws, um, traditional weapons, shoved into buildings and 
locked in and burned alive. Crucified in some cases. Children being put into piles and speared to death. I actually interviewed a survivor who was at the bottom of a pile of children that was being speared to death. Um, He's since passed, but he remembered the spear getting his face, but he was the only one in the pile of children who survived. And he recalled how he kept himself from crying because he knew if he cried, and he was maybe five, six years old, he knew if he cried, that would be the end of him. And he was at the very bottom of the pile, which was why he survived. So when I listen to stories like that, and I've heard many of them and and read a few, um, the first thing that comes to mind is why has it taken so long for this recognition? And, you know, recently we've we've had the... um, Recently, we've had the the, 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 the the fundamental change in American politics and Joe Biden has came out and, and recognised the Armenian genocide. But here we are in New Zealand with this such this close relationship with, with those people through Gallipoli and the Turkey and all that kind of thing. And it's still not been recognised here. Why? Have you got a take on that? I think... New Zealand suffers from what I call the real politic of small states, which is it does not stand up very often. It has a couple of instances in its history that it likes to tout as, look, we were brave and we stood up against the big boys. You know, new, American uh, nuclear ships yeah. and Greenpeace and all of those, those, right. all those great iconic but, moments. But those are two times, right? And... Now, New Zealand is particularly vulnerable in trade um, ever since it, it lost some of its trading partners, you know, when the EU and all of that was developing in a way that it, um, much of their dairy shipments were no longer being sent to the UK, for example. So now they had to find new trading partners and China and Turkey, big human rights abusers, or some of them, China's the big one. But there's also this... Uh, piggybacking on Australia. And where Australia goes, often New Zealand goes. Where the UK goes, sometimes New Zealand goes. And neither Australia nor the UK have officially recognized the Armenian Genocide. Both Australia and New Zealand have monuments to um, a mass murderer, Mustafa Kemal, who they call Ataturk, which means father of the Turks. Um, which is uh, to not just to Armenians, but to Greeks and to Cypriots and to, you know, Kurds and you, all of the victims of the human rights abuses of Turkey, which are many um, more victims and there might be non-victims at this point, uh, are not very pleased about it. But Australia's got this too. And they've got this relationship with Turkey, in part a a diplomacy where they can go to Gallipoli and mourn the death of their family members or their ancestors uh, for the younger generations. And I think that also plays a part in it. So, you know, 
Is that because, you know, if Australia and New Zealand were to come out and say, we recognise the, uh, the, uh, the Armenian genocide, is that the, OK, no more coming to Gallipoli and, and, uh, and having your, your... Well, Turkey has threatened that as one of its threats. I have not kept track of all of them, but it, it does make threats periodically to try to prevent countries from recognising the Armenian genocide. Something feels a little bit different at the minute. Something feels like things are moving in the right direction. Mm. And it'd be interesting to get your take on that. Boy, it's hard for me to say from, you know, being in this country at the bottom of the world. Certainly President Biden's recognition was extremely meaningful. Now, Congress has been recognizing it. The U.S. Congress has been recognizing the Armenian genocide. I think for I remember seeing Adam Schiff frequently talking about the Armenian genocide. Absolutely, he represents a lot of Armenians okay. in his district. Um, but then, if not all of the states, nearly all of the states in the U.S. have individually also recognized the Armenian genocide. So there, so all that was left really was the president. And at this point, everybody thought it was going to be Barack Obama. Everybody thought Barack Obama was going to be the courageous one, the transformational president. And he didn't do it. He, was, he used the Armenian phrase instead of the word genocide. Genocide has a legal connotation to it. That's mm. part of what is... Once it's recognized, it's recognized. Yes, it's recognized. Yeah. And it's also, uh, it might mean that uh, some kind of legal action can be made, can be f- furthered, and I think Turkey is quite afraid of that. So, so coming obviously being a being British, it, I've always viewed Turkey. You know, I've been to Turkey. Turkish friends, nothing against Turkish people. You mean historic whatsoever. Armenia. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. Look, I'm glad you said that, and not, <laughs> not me. But. Um, I th- you know, I was thinking, well, you know, why is the why is the reluctance on on British or lots of European countries, you know, and America disagree? And I can understand Turkey is part of NATO, and there was yes, that whole, exactly. and and there was obviously some geopolitical engineering yes. and shenanigans going on there. Yeah. Um, but then you just go, you know, I put my I put my my left leaning guardian head on and go, well, you know, this as a human race, we can't function like this mm. without addressing fundamental ills. Mm. Sure, there may be a political um, trade price to pay, but surely that's worth paying. Um, and it's just interesting seeing how it's playing out on the, on the global stage. And when I saw President Biden um, come out, I thought, wow, I, are things changing now? But like you say, it's still difficult from a small nation's perspective. You know, I think um, just recently in the news we had the whole uh, recognition, you know, just under Erdogan's been under pressure to recognise the genocide of the Uyghurs. And, but also she's got the trade minister just gently reminding her probably that 30% of our, our, our exports, are, um, dairy exports, etc., go through China. Yeah. It's a, almost an impossible situation to be in. Mm. Is it? I don't know. It is difficult if you... New Zealand is in, a, in an economic bind. It relies so heavily on farming and fishing for its base of economy and exports to China, for example. 
for the country to survive. It really needs to rethink things in a way, if it wants to be the human rights country that it says it wants to be, it needs to completely rethink its economic base. I don't know what the answer is, but the future, the 21st century, is not farming. That is definitely... Well, certainly not in its current incarnation. Definitely not its incarnation, but it's it's also that it's one of the most uh, environmentally degrading, climate change-causing industries that we have. So it's really got to change for a lot of reasons. Mm. Also having your you know hands tied that, like that by human rights abusers. Yeah, I guess it's difficult. So, so look, let's let's just expand this out a little bit because one of the things which fascinated me was looking back in Armenia's history, mm. and you can't begin to understand. So we, we, we look at the conflict of 2020, and um, and you'll have to excuse my pronunciation. It's not brilliant, but is it Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh? Or, uh, Artsakh is, or Artsakh is the historic name. Yeah. So this is my understanding of it, and tell me if it's if I'm how far off the mark I am because I'm bound to be quite a bit off it. But um, my understanding is, you know, Armenia used to be a, a Soviet um, republic. After yes, after the yeah. genocide, it couldn't survive, right, and went into the protectorate of the Soviet Union. Then I understand Stalin came along and gave away or annexed off little bits of Armenia to... Didn't to give other. it away. Okay. What Stalin did is he made Artsakh an autonomous region. So the Armenians had autonomy there, but he put it inside of Azerbaijan, despite that it was autonomous. There are some arguments that he did that in part to appease Turkey to appease others, uh, to divide and conquer. So you take this piece of land, you let the Armenians stay there and rule themselves, but you have them wholly surrounded by Azerbaijan. So it wasn't really a brilliant thing to do, but it it served him in some way. Mm. So it has been, because of that, um, it has a little bit of a conflict from the very early stages Artsakh voted for independence by referendum. And that was rejected by Azerbaijan. And that was when there was a war before in which Armenia won. There had been pogroms. First, the uh, Azeris massacred Armenians. Then in the war, Armenians massacred Zeris, uh, and it was really quite ugly. So there is now kind of an animus between them more than it should have been. Mm. Um, and then, as you know, there was the war just last year. And it was fascinating. It was horrific, and you know, obviously not, not a good thing in any way whatsoever. But what was fascinating is because of the way it was recognised internationally by law. It was almost it was almost like watching global apathy mm. happen, um, and it's not until you understand the deep history of the region and the Armenian people um, that you just realised how unjust it was. You know, just because because it's their indigenous lands. Yeah, I mean, we've lost everything 
We've lost our indigenous lands. We've lost our family members. We've lost our culture. We've lost everything. All of the things that we have built over from ancient times, thousands and thousands of years, gone. And now, even today, they're erasing any sign that there were Armenians there. I saw that, that, that there, were, there were, you know, demolishing churches, erasing graveyards. Um, look, let's just go off on a little bit of a tangent because, you know, people like me who don't, who don't have Armenian heritage don't really understand the history of it all. How old is Armenia? Oh, gosh. <sighs> let's try and get a grasp of it in global scale because it wasn't until I started reading that I thought, Far out. Let's just, let's, I, gosh, I, I don't know that I can answer that accurately, okay. but thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, Armenians are really. And not, and not as a primitive nation, as a. They're an ancient, ancient culture, an ancient people that live there. Yeah. And would it be fair to say through history they were always bombarded with conflicts and warring nations, et cetera? Has that changed, did that change the shape of it prior to, 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 Yes, oh, definitely. Um, And then, of course, when the Turks came over and it became the Ottoman Empire, that was kind of the period um, where Armenians became a minority in their own land. Yeah, so uh, this is a region where there was fertile ground and there was trade and there was kind of the pathway you know, east between west, because it's, you know, it sits right there in between the east and the west. So it would make sense that there would be some desire to come in and exploit what's available. Armenians won some of those and lost some of those, and then obviously um, lost in the Ottoman Empire, but lived still with some independence for part of the Ottoman Empire because they had the millet system where different groups could sort of self-govern within within the entire empire because there are so many different kinds of ethnicities within it. But as Armenians asked for rights, because they had no rights, you know, they had to step aside if a Turk walked by, for example, they had to step off the street, and they had to war- wear... Um, it was almost like a yellow star, but it wasn't a yellow star. They had to wear certain clothing that identified them as Armenians so that they could be discriminated against. Because, you know, I mean, Armenians are distinctive looking, but not that distinctive looking, right? You could sort of pass for something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Georgian or this or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Didn't have legal rights in the same way. If they were, um, if there were pogroms, there was. No real way to go and file a grievance. Um, If there was a massacre, there was no real way to file a grievance. There was all kinds of famine that came in or disease, and they had no protection from the Ottoman government. So they were really asking for their rights. And that was when the Armenian problem started um, in in Ottoman Turkey. Mm. And, you know, I mean, my first reading of, I think, was it 1920 or 1922, where, you know, Met Adarat and everything was seconded, mm. or whatever you want to call it. Um, and there just seems to be, you know, 
I looked at the conflict last year and I just saw it as just a continuation of the land grab and the genocide in many ways. I think that's how most Armenians would see it, yeah. That this... Keep in mind that what was going on at the time when you mentioned that it looked like people were not very interested in it. Keep in mind this was in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. And you have strong men running countries like the USA. You had Donald Trump in the USA who loves his fellow strongmen. Oh, and yeah. He loved Erdogan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, name a dictator he didn't, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so I think the timing was convenient for Turkey and Azerbaijan to try to enact what Turkey uh, what some some people call it the scholars some scholars call it the um, neo Ottoman Empire being built where they're trying to consolidate from you know from where their borders are now all the way to the east where was Russia in all of this yeah good question not very helpful missing in action well let's just look at that too Armenia had the Velvet Revolution a uh, Velvet Revolution where they installed a human rights guy into leadership. Serge was very involved in this. This is Nikol uh, Pashinyan. That's right, yeah. Pashinyan. Pashinyan is not one of those dictators. He's not a strong man. And so you can guess that Vladimir Putin did not like him very much and was certainly not going to come to his aid if, in fact, he could get one of his own people installed as a result of Pashinyan's failure. This is my speculation. I have no evidence of this. Well, prior to Pashinyan, it was, a, from my understanding, my limited understanding, prior to him, it was a corrupted oligarchical... Has been lead, for quite some quite time. Quite some time. Yeah. Um, I won't say it's a puppet of Russia, but, you know... Good relations with Russia. Good relations whereas with Russia, Pashinyan, yeah. I think, was just not one of them. Uh, I, I followed that Velvet Revolution and the way... He was just a man with a rucksack and took, you know, took to the street. And um, it was an amazing thing to see develop. Here we are many years later. What's the current state? You know, how viable is his position? Because it was interesting just looking at the split in Armenia and the people who just thought he'd sold the country out. And He's in a very vulnerable position. Hmm. Yeah. Look... I think that being positioned in between Turkey and Azerbaijan on either side, Georgia and Iran up and down, is a really difficult thing to begin with. And then to not speak the language of Vladimir Putin and the other potential powerful ally being the United States, being run by Donald Trump. You know, the poor guy. Yeah. Um, he, you know, it reminds me a little bit of um, a presidency, something like Jimmy Carter, you know, who had all these good intentions, but, you know, couldn't play the hardball game. Well, quite frankly, it was not going to be a war he was going to win. Not with all the technology that was on the... Uh, Things are different. No. So the drones that the uh, that Azerbaijan had, the mercenaries that Turkey brought over. Yeah, it was... Armenians are pretty good at defending their homelands, but I don't think those are things they could go up against. And he didn't have anybody to go to for that kind of 
you know, technology. And so what's, what's your thoughts from here for Armenia now that there's this tentative ceasefire, ceasefire or deal or whatever for Artsakh? And, and um, is, can you see a clear path of stability and growth there? Or I think it can be. Um, again, it, it really needs powerful allies. Um, we can again look to President Biden to see where he's going to respond to this. There's some discussion now about whether or not aid to Azerbaijan should be cut off. So far, he has not done that. But I think that now when you know you can't look to Vladimir Putin and you've got to find another powerful ally when you're geographically in that situation. Mm. So that's, I, I really, I don't see Armenia making it on its own without those allies. Yeah. It needs powerful allies. Some people think it should um, get closer to the so uh, to, not so get closer to Russia. Yeah. I'm thinking my head's in the past. <laughs> um, I would I would think that's probably a mistake. I think it would be better to move toward the West. Mm. It's one thing moving towards the West, but it's another thing trying to move towards the West surrounded geographically the way you are. Like you say, it's almost like stuck between. It's like being stuck at a a horrible party between sets of, <laughs> sets of rela- relatives that, that have all got the daggers out for, for you. And I don't mean to belittle the situation, no, but, right. but it is, there is there is something somewhat comical in the macabre, yeah. you know, macabre way about it. And, and I suppose this is one of these things where countries like America coming out and formally recognising the genocide, these are things which will move everything in that right direction we hope and obviously that's one of the reasons why we're trying to get new zealand and australia to to recognize and the uk mm-hmm. so what you know is that any is are these really important factors whether it gets this much international recognition look i think it i think getting the armenian genocide recognized has both um legal ramifications and also psychological ramifications. Mm. The Armenian people are scattered all over the world, separated from each other, separated from their their traditional homelands. And every time they have moved to a new country, often they've had to move again because of some other war, some other conflict. And so there's this kind of sense of, never quite belonging, you know. And the recognition at least would put some, uh, gosh, some salve for all of these wounds that I feel like we carry around with us, being a little bit nomadic, like still grieving, still feeling this like we can't change who we are. You can't change that you're Armenian, right? And yet, you're targeted for being Armenian. You were targeted for genocide for being Armenian. And if everybody goes, oh, no, you weren't. <laughs> or, oh, it wasn't a genocide. I mean, you know, Turkey's line is, oh, well, you know, people, everybody died. You know, it was a war. Uh, 
Or, oh, but Armenians were staging rebellion. And when you stop to think about the preposterousness of that argument, when most of the casualties were children. Clearly not staging rebellion. Clearly not part of the war. And the conscripted men who were then just killed, right? So, so the recognition of this allows Armenians to at least just sigh, a collective sigh, like... Whew. Hopefully putting an end to this multi-generational trauma. I don't think it puts an end to it. Or helping it to I heal. I think it just lets you start because there's always that need to come to terms with what was before you could start any kind of a healing process. Scattered all over the world, will Armenians ever be able to come back together? We've got this one little country, you know, left. A tiny sliver of what it once was, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe through this recognition, maybe if it spreads out a little bit more, we'll have some kind of rights to something, some kind of reparation rights um, as now grandchildren of the survivors, not the children of survivors. But, you know, time will tell. We're all getting old. <laughs> I'm trying to regress, but it doesn't seem to be, <laughs> to be working well. So, look... Um, a couple of interesting things that I'd get your thoughts on. First of all, if people would like to learn more about what happened mm. and the history of Armenia, apart from, you know, digging around on Wikipedia or this or whatever, what, what resources or books or would you point people in the direction to? You know, um, one, there are lots of them. There are lots of really great books. Uh, there's... Uh, there are Armenian authors and there are Turkish authors that have both done quite a bit of really interesting work. One of the definitive historians is a Turkish guy named Taner Akçam. And he actually went into the archives of Turkey and dug up the killing orders. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and he's written a couple of books. I think one of them was called something like The Killing Orders. One of them was called A Shameful Act. Um and it's spelled T-A-N-E-R-A-K-C-A-M. So that is a Turkish scholar looking at the Armenian genocide. Not on, not on Erdogan's birthday card list. <laughs> no. Um, there's a guy named Dadrian who has written some fantastic history. He's dead now. Um, he was on the Armenian side. Um, Hovanesian. Richard Hovanissian has written some amazing books. If people are interested in the connection between, like, New Zealand and the Armenian Genocide, this new book that James Robbins has just put out is fantastic, um, which I had mentioned earlier on in this, in this podcast, uh, When We Dead Awaken. It's a fantastic name, too, I think. Peter Balakian's work, also um, Black Dog of Fate, Really readable. The Burning Tigris, also really readable. Um, won book awards. Then there's all the fiction stuff, which is also great. There's a great movie, also done by a Turkish filmmaker called The Cut. Have you seen this? No. Totally worth it. Okay. Turkish filmmaker telling the Armenian story and telling it through 
an Armenian protagonist who has who is looking for his family in the midst of a genocide and has escaped death barely um, and is just the whole thing is I, I won't tell you the main crux of it because it's totally worth seeing. And I think that this Turkish filmmaker did a really good job telling the story. So apart from trying to understand how we got here, mm-hmm. what can you know? We're, we're in a in a. There seems to be some kind of palpable momentum towards recognition mm-hmm. globally. Um, what is it that people can? Okay, let's just talk to our Kiwi friends. Um, as a New Zealander who sees the injustice in this and the recent piece on News Hub did a very mm. good job of this and your piece in the New Zealand Herald um, as a New Zealander what can we do to encourage mm. the government to to do the right thing I mean obviously it's, they're in a difficult position but what do we do you know there I was surprised to find out that a young man I say young I think he's young um, I've never met him has started a petition in the parliament to recognize the Armenian genocide. Jacob Hallgarth um, started a petition on his own volition um, in the parliament to recognize the Armenian genocide. And I don't know how many signatures it takes to really get the attention of the parliament, but it's worth going and signing that petition at this point. Um, I reached out to him and I said, did you start this petition? <laughs> I had never met him before. I, and he said, I did. And I said, what made you do that? And he said, because New Zealanders don't know about this and they need to know about this. And it was a horrible injustice. I'm paraphrasing him, of course. Mm. Um, and he just seemed really passionate about, about the issue. So good on him. Awesome. Yeah, because... You know, you know, New Zealand is our home, and, and we love it. And one of the, the the one of the 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 things that you notice about New Zealand is they have a they have a good moral compass in general. Yes, and they care about the little guys. They care about injustice, and this is one. This is the other thing that amazes me. Um, you and I started to talk about this before we started to record, which is that when I looked into the New Zealand historical newspapers, I counted something like 75,000 articles that either referenced Armenians or Armenia in this over a hundred year period. Now, of course, some of these are repeat articles. You know, one runs in the New Zealand um, Herald and then it runs in the Otago Witness, you know, so... But these articles detailed the atrocities that were going on at the time, uh, horrific things that were happening all even before the actual official day of the genocide. So New Zealand readers knew about this at the time. They were raising money for Armenians. They had all kinds of relief committees. There were humanitarians that actually went and worked in the orphanages to rescue Armenians. There were a couple of soldiers in the Dunster Force that were New Zealanders that rescued Armenians. So there's like this connection between 
you know, New Zealand history and New Zealand people and the Armenian people, this connection that is really beautiful and honorable. New Zealanders acted out to try to help um, more than their government did, even though the government did help uh, in some ways, just not to the degree that everyday New Zealanders did. They, they opened up their pocketbooks and, and gave money for relief, for food, for, you know, helping the orphans. And today it's, um, you know, more or less forgotten that history. That's another reason why I plugged James' book, James's book, is because he recounts some of that. Not, so, not as many of the articles um, as he focuses on the humanitarian efforts of everyday New Zealanders to try to help the Armenians during the genocide. Maria, thank you so much for taking your time to chat with me today, being the um, mumbling Philistine I am with, with, ah. with Armenian history and knowledge. But I just thought it was a, it was a you know... It, you know quite a bit. Ah, I know enough to be dangerous, is the classic saying. That's really good. <laughs> um, but I think it, I really do think it's a it's a it's a story that we should all know, and it's a horrific injustice that we should all be aware of. Could I just also say that there were other indigenous people that were also annihilated and victims of genocide particularly the Assyrians, who were also Christian and persecuted because they were Christian and Assyrian. And the thing about the Assyrians, there's quite a population here in New Zealand, more than Armenians, but the Assyrians don't even have a homeland at all anymore. So they're completely without a homeland. And they have not had the kind of political attention that the Armenians have recently. And I think it would be important to include... um, the history of the Assyrians and the horrific injustices that they have also faced. Much harder to research. Um, for some reason, it's, it's, it's been a little bit harder to get those details. And also the Greeks in the region. That was also a genocide, the Pontic Greeks. So, the you know, Ottoman Turkey is responsible for annihilating three separate indigenous groups of people and then taking their indigenous lands and property and the things that they built for centuries and then building Turkey on, on top of it. Look, I think um, Turkish people should know that their ancestors largely rescued Armenians too, that Turkish people rescued my family that if it weren't for the community uh, that my family were integrated into, even the soldiers, the gendarmes, uh, warned my family where to go and where not to go so that they would survive. And what that says, I think, is that people are good, generally, that it was the Turkish government that wanted to do this for all kinds of reasons, power mainly, usually governments do this kind of thing for power. But that Turkish people at the time, um, not all of them, because people are not, you know, monolithic, we're all different, but, um, you know, there was no animosity between Turks and Armenians in the community where my family lived.
or by the way, in Cyprus, where my mother grew up, uh, Turks and Armenians lived side by side. Now they're divided because Turkey invaded Cyprus and divided the country. Um, but, you know, Turkish people and Armenian people have always had good relationships, if not for their governments othering us. A big thank you to Maria for taking part in this episode, and the links accompanying this can be found in the post description, including the link to the petition for the New Zealand government to recognise the Armenian genocide. For more information on this podcast, visit thesumup.co.nz, and you can subscribe to these podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud.